You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. My name is Kathy Biasse, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we'd like to welcome you to the show today. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Keeping it right. I'm happy to be here, as always. As always. It's nice to see you twice in a week. Yeah, today we're doing a pre-recorded show, right? Exactly. So we've got an exciting guest on. We have an exciting guest. We do. I'm really looking forward to speaking to our guest today. When we do our live shows, I'm here Tuesday, and our pre-recorded shows are here Thursday. So when I get to see Alex twice in a week, it's a good week. Well, thanks. I I appreciate seeing you as well. Uh, Yeah. Um, We can't have any live calls today, unfortunately, but you can reach out to us on social media at the Health Hub RMC. We are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And if you'd like to get a hold of us or want any further information about our show, you can reach us at THH at RadioMaria.ca. So I wanted to talk today a little bit about dietary fats. Mm-hmm. It's something that has popped up a few times in the show and I think one time I said we need to devote a whole show to it, but I do get questions all the time about including fats in our diet. We want to keep trans fats out of the diet for sure. It's important to to keep them away from from our bodies. You've probably heard a lot in the media that uh, they are being eliminated. Trans fats are not healthy for us, but we do want to include healthy fats in our diet. Fats are needed to help absorb certain nutrients, including fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K, and antioxidants such as beta-carotene and lycopene. Fats are also important for cell structure and cell signaling, very important in our metabolism. Fats are necessary for hormone production. A lot of people don't know that. Very important for hormone production. And fats help keep us satiated. So if you're on a weight loss path, it's important to include fats in your diet because they they stop you from snacking. So I just wanted to give you a quick list of some healthy fats that are very easy to incorporate into your diet. Coconut oil, extra virgin olive oil. That's an easy one if you have salads. Extra virgin olive oil can be included into your your salads every day or on top of some vegetables, nuts. I know for me, sorry, uh, the... uh, the oil, when you add it to the salad, it does add a lot of flavor. For me, when I was growing up, I was allergic, allergic to most of the uh, most of the dressings that are available, and the, and the extra virgin olive oil definitely did help. Yeah, with and the you just put some lemon yeah. and salt, and it, that's an easy one. Yeah, exactly. Nuts are great. Raw and salted is what I I'd like to recommend. Nut butter, like almond butter, cashew butter, avocados, fatty fish such as wild caught salmon, mackerel, sardines, anchovies. Eggs are great. Seeds such as pumpkin seed, chia, flax, hemp, butter, and ghee, which is a, a clarified butter, are, are also great. Ghee is very, very healthy. It's, it's not something that we're too common with here, but um, I do recommend that quite often. I've tried to make ghee at home, and I burn it all the time, so I just, I just buy it. Good for you. So now you have some ideas to incorporate into your diet there. Thank you. You're very welcome. So on to the show today. I am a great admirer of the work of our guest today, Dr. Sachin Panda. His research in the area of circadian rhythms and timed eating, I truly believe are relevant to everybody. People who are healthy, those who are fighting disease, and those like myself who have fought disease and are on a prevention pathway. I implement the tenets of his work both clinically and personally, and I know that the information that he will be sharing with us today will inspire all of you on your health journey. Dr. Panda is a professor at the Salk Institute, where his research focuses on circadian rhythm in health and disease. His discoveries are rated among the top 10 breakthroughs of the year by the Science Magazine, and he is considered as one of the top 50 influential scientists in the book Brain Trust. 
Research in his lab has shown the profound impact of ambient light and daily eating fasting rhythm on the prevention and management of chronic diseases and cancer. Currently, his lab has developed a freely available research app to study how our timed eating, sleeping, and physical activity affect our health. And it is free to anyone to sign up for and the information Dr. Panda uses in his research. When we get back, we will be speaking with Dr. Panda. It's a show you just do not want to miss. We'll be back in a few minutes. I'm still looking for a dream A war's already waged For my destiny But you've already won the battle And you've got great plans for me Though I can't always see Cause I got a couple dents in my Turn out right And I'd make it here somehow But things don't always come that easy And sometimes I would doubt Oh, cause I got a couple dents in my fender Got a couple rips in my jeans Try to fit the pieces together But perfection is can do anything Yet other times I think I've got nothing good to bring But you look at my heart and you tell me that I've got all you see Girl And it's easy to believe Even though I got a couple dents in my fender Got a couple rips in my are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to The Health Hub. Our show today is pre-recorded, so no opportunity to call in. But again, you can reach us on social media sites at The Health Hub RMC, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and you can email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Also, all of our shows are available on iTunes, Uh, After they air, it takes about a week or so, and then we get them up on iTunes. So please do subscribe, download your favorite episodes. We have had a lot of wonderful guests, and one of them is here today. Good morning, Dr. Panda. Good morning, Kathy. 
Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, thank you for coming. Um, as I said, I'm a great admirer of your work, and uh, I am looking forward to the show uh, quite a bit, and I'm really looking forward to our listeners, the, the listeners hearing about your work because it's it's something quite novel uh, in the health field. Although circadian rhythms, I know, have been a part of our bodies since we've been alive, uh, most people really don't know what what they are, do they? No, not really, because uh, the term is a little bit confusing. And uh, the name circadian actually comes from two Latin words. Uh, circa means approximately, and dian means uh, daily. So any act or anything in our body that repeats itself in a daily fashion is a circadian rhythm. So just like we go to bed every night and wake up, so sleep has a circadian rhythm. Similarly, almost every plant, every animal, every bug on this planet has certain physical activities, sleep, etc., that repeat itself. And we call them circadian rhythms. And do we have, so our body as a whole has a circadian rhythm or... Um you know, some of our organs function differently. Do some function on their own circadian rhythm, or is it just one big clock that we operate on? Yeah, so it's almost like having a lot of clocks in your house. So every room in your house has a clock, or every building in your big office has its uh, own clock. So similarly, almost every organ in our body has its own clock. But at the same time, they have to be synchronized with each other, and they have to know that they're keeping the correct time. So just like um, in the old days, there used to be an atomic clock or a central clock, and we all, all the radio stations, all TV stations, used to synchronize their clock to this atomic clock. Similarly, we have what we call is a master circadian clock, and that's present in only 20,000 neurons nerve cells at the base of our brain, and that part of the brain is called suprachiasmatic nucleus. So that essentially transmits uh, the timing information to all these organ clocks, and then the organ clocks remain synchronized. Is it throughout the day, do all of our rhythms, they're continually changing throughout the day, or um, like for the, let's take the liver, for example, is there a particular time of, of day that that functions better than other times, or is that how it works? Uh, well, if you take, for example, a liver, liver does a lot of different things. So just like in the office building, we have different acts that go on uh, just before uh, we get to, the, get to the office. The custodial staff come and clean up the place, and then we come in, then around nine o'clock the mail services come in, they do their job, and around noon the cafeteria or the bistro opens and we go eat our food, and around four or five the FedEx truck comes in and then takes the mail away, and then around evening the security guards come in. So similarly, liver does many different things. Um, just before we start eating in the morning, the liver it gets ready to expect the big bolus of food that we are going to eat. After we eat, again, the liver is very active in breaking down the nutrients, sorting them out and sending to the right part of the brain, right part of the brain and body. Then in the downtime, after the last meal, the liver does completely different things. It uh, starts cleaning up itself, detoxifies, many of the stuff that our body doesn't need. For example, there is a lot of food coloring, there is a lot of food flavor, and many natural products that are actually our body doesn't need. But they are part of our food, and they have to be removed from the body. So those detoxification starts. And then in the middle of the night, the liver has to also figure out are there any dead cells. And liver has to get rid of those dead cells and replace them with new cells. So that also happens uh, late at night. So as you can see, there are different rhythms within the liver, and these rhythms have to happen at perfect time. For example, you cannot uh, repair an organ when the organ is still working. So there has to be this time difference. Uh, uh, different functions of the liver has to happen at the at specific time. 
And the circadian clock in liver, for example, times all these functions to the right time of the day or night. What happens if our clocks are out of sync? And how does that happen? Yeah, um, as you can see, um, it's intimately linked to what do our clocks actually do? How do they optimize our function? So clocks do two different things. One is they allow our body to do compatible things at the same time um, and make sure that our body doesn't do incompatible things at the same time. The best example is this. Um, when we try to text and drive, we can do it once in a while, but it's not safe. The same thing, you cannot run a marathon and check your Instagram. Um, Whereas some other things are compatible, for example, listening to radio while working on a project or driving or eating dinner and talking to friends. So some of these acts go hand in hand so well together that we feel happy and productive. Similarly, a clock, uh, clocks in different parts of the body, they work together to make sure that our bodies, hormones, brain chemicals, and enzymes they rise and fall in synchrony with each other if they're compatible, and they rise and fall at different time of the day if they're incompatible. So having said that, then the question is, what happens when circadian clocks don't talk to each other? As you can imagine, when they don't talk to each other, then hormones and chemicals that should not be together, now they start to rise and fall together. It's almost like texting and driving at the same time and doing it every day, miles after miles. So when these incompatible things get together, then our body cannot function properly, and after a while, we uh, fall sick with chronic diseases. Is the rhythm of our circadian clock, so the clocks produce a rhythm, is this, in your belief, the basis of where disease comes from? Well, many diseases come from uh, the circadian misalignment. Uh, one simple example that many of us have experienced is just imagine when our clocks are not in sync with the outside light and dark condition. So, for example, um, in winter days when there is very little light and it's cold outside, we don't go out to the cold. We stay inside, indoor, in dark environment. And after a few days, one or two days is okay. We just feel a little low. Then after a few days, we may actually get into clinical depression. Similarly, uh, people have shown recently that you can take healthy individuals and put them under night shift work situation for four to five days and give them food at the wrong time and even one week of this disrupted rhythm or uh, eating at the wrong time can increase insulin resistance or glucose intolerance, which is an early sign of pre-diabetes or diabetes. Then the third example I would give uh, comes from infectious disease. Although our clock doesn't directly um, regulate how infection occurs because infections occur because of outside pathogens, Clocks actually um, produce chemicals and cytokines, for example, those fight infections. So if we take um, mice, put them in jet lag paradigm, so that means we change their light-dark cycle every three to four days, then older mice become very susceptible to infection. And very tiny amount of bacteria or pathogens that they are supposed to tolerate or resist, now they cannot tolerate them. So this relates to very simple observations or experience we all experience when we travel across time zones, um, then many of us fall sick. And we always think that this might be due to exposure to pathogens. Uh, that, might, that may be partly true, but the other part is due to jet lag, our circadian clocks get so disrupted that that don't produce the disease-fighting chemicals at the right time, and we become susceptible. So in that way, we can trace back um, 
the cause or increased risk to almost 100 different diseases back to disruption in circadian rhythms. I know with uh, in the cancer field, there has been research on shift work and breast cancer. Now, if somebody is continually on a shift work, so they're working, say, midnight to, to 7 o'clock, can their circadian rhythms be shifted into a healthy mode because they're be completely backwards? Or is this something that, you know, we're born with these circadian rhythms and they're attended to, they have to be maintained throughout our lives? Are they malleable, these circadian rhythms? So that's a, a great question. And this is what uh, we are actually starting to ask in a um, very well-designed clinical study uh, with uh, firefighters in San Diego. Um, and this is also a, becoming a larger public health debate. Uh, the reason is this. Almost 20% of uh, workforce in Western countries like U.S., Canada, are shift workers. These are the card-carrying shift workers. They are the first responders, nurses, firefighters, airline pilots, etc. But in addition to them, there are also second-hand shift workers. So these are the spouses of shift workers who are staying up late or waking up early to give company to their spouses, and uh, they also silently suffer from the same circadian disruption. Then more importantly, a lot of us, um, we work in one shift during the weekdays and work in a different shift in the weekend. Let me explain that. So for people like you and I, uh, we kind of try to work too much during the weekdays. We, uh, Many of us go to bed even after midnight. And the weekend, we try to catch up. So we stay in the bed. Many of us, many teenagers particularly, stay in bed until noon and they wake up. So what happens is they're almost like in one time zone during weekday and another time zone in the weekend. So if we combine all these people, um, the card-carrying shift workers, second-hand shift workers, and what we call social jet lag, where uh, people are living in one lifestyle during weekdays, another lifestyle in the weekend, then we're talking about almost 70 to 80% of population going through this very chronic circadian disruption. And this is very new. We never used to have this widespread circadian disruption in our population even 50 years ago. So now the question that you brought up is very important. That is, are these rhythms malleable? How long does it take to reset our clock to a new lifestyle? And then how long it takes for us to come back to the, our weekend lifestyle, for example? So the rule of thumb from basic science research is it takes on an average one day to adjust to one hour change in our sleep-wake cycle or eating-fasting cycle. So that means if we delay our sleep time in the weekend by two days, then our body is trying to catch up with our weekend schedule for two days. And during that time, our circadian rhythm is in misalignment with our sleep-wake or our eating-fasting rhythm. Then on Monday, when we are coming back to our weekday schedule, it will again take two to three days to come back to normal, uh, come back to alignment with our weekday schedule. So in this way, you can see that almost for half of the week, or more than half of the week, our clock is, our circadian system is playing catch-up. So now the question is, uh, how can we um, live this lifestyle at the same time, uh, bring some sanity to our circadian system? And this is the big, this is the huge question in the field. What can we do? Can we maintain the same sleep-wake cycle? Can we, can we have bright light for a few hours? That will be enough. Or do we have to eat at the same time during weekday and weekend? So... To answer these questions, we're working with the firefighters to see what we can do to keep the, some kind of sanity to the circadian system um, by uh, whether they can eat everything that they want within 10 to 11 hours every day, weekday and weekend. Will that give them help, give their health in a better state? 
So, uh, I'm sorry, we do not have an answer yet. But what we think is, uh, if we keep our sleep-wake cycle consistent between weekday, weekend, and if we keep our eating-fasting cycle consistent between weekday and weekend, then that may negate, that may reduce some of the harmful impact of um, our shift work-like lifestyle. Okay. I want to get to the eating, fasting. Um, This is a very, very huge component of your work after break. But just before we get uh, to break, it's not then I just wanted to to ask this question. So going to bed at the same time every night is key. Does it matter what time you go to bed at night? If you go to bed at 12 and get up at 8 or go to bed at 10 and get up at at 7 or 6, is is that important? Well, so that's um, um, since we have now bright lights and we can recreate our day and night very different from the natural day and night cycle. Uh, I believe that uh, some of us who have to go to bed at midnight and get up at seven or eight, uh, it should be okay if we do it consistently every day. Okay. Let's let's end off the first half there. That's very informative. Thank you so much for that. And we'll be back after a short break. I woke up this morning, saw a world full of trouble. Now I thought, how do we ever get so far down? And how's it ever going to turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven. I thought, God, why don't you do something? Just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty and children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me, so I shook my fist at heaven. I said, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. I created you. If not us, then.
You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to The Health Hub, and we're talking to Dr. Sachin Panda here. Um, we ended off the first half talking about uh, the importance of sleep, and we got a lot of information in that half. But Dr. Panda alluded to something else that is very new on the health front for many of us, and that's the time-restricted eating or the timed eating. And Dr. Panda, how is this implicated with circadian rhythms? Yeah, so you remember how I said that we have a brain clock and that acts as a master time giver to the rest of our body. That was the thought for many years. And a few years ago, we did a simple experiment in mice where uh, mice are nocturnal, they're night active, they eat at night. But if we gave them food during daytime, then somehow uh, the clocks in their liver, gut, and everywhere outside the brain, um, the clock started tracking food, not light. And that was a aha moment in circadian rhythm because we realized that just like light entrains or synchronizes our brain clock to day-night cycle, eating and fasting synchronizes the rest of the clock in our body to our day and night cycle. So that led to the idea that to keep our rhythms robust and healthy, perhaps eating at the same time every day and giving ourselves uh, 12 to 14 or 16 hours of break of fasting every night would be an ideal way. And that led to the idea of what what is now called time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding. When you implement time-restricted, this is something that I've mentioned that I've, I've just started to do in clinic, mainly with uh, cancer patients. The science, what what does it do for our metabolism? Yeah. So just like our brain has a clock, uh, that means our brain is active or is more efficient in doing complex tasks during daytime and needs some downtime at night to rest, repair, and rejuvenate. Similarly, almost every organ in our body, they have a clock, so they have a peak time when they can digest food or detoxify. At the same time, they need several hours of downtime to repair, reset, and rejuvenate. So when we eat for, say, 8 to 10 hours, and then we give our body rest for, um, say, 14 to 16 hours, then during that rest time, Uh, many of our organs can repair, reset, rejuvenate. At the same time, they can detoxify. They can repair the DNA so that we don't, our risk for cancer might go down. Um, They also increase the production of many chemicals that protect our cells against toxic agents. In that way, we reduce the risk for uh, many of the diseases. Uh, the clocks in different organs also do another thing. They reduce the amount of cholesterol our body stores by breaking down cholesterol to various products, including uh, what we call bile acids and different steroid hormones. So in that way, our body comes to a nice balance between how much cholesterol we have and how much of these different essential hormones and bile acids we have. Um, the same thing happens with uh, sugar metabolism uh, during this uh, feeding fasting cycle. The body maintains a nice balance between how much of sugar is stored as glycogen and how much is stored as fat. And not only that, by doing this feeding fasting, the body stores fat in the right place. So for example, the fat has to be stored in, in our fat cells. And when we eat at the wrong time, then the fat gets stored inside liver, inside pancreas, and that causes disease. So in this way, uh, the feeding fasting cycle helps us, helps our body to detoxify, to maintain the right balance between cholesterol and different hormones, and also to maintain the right balance between 
how much sugar and how much fat a body stores in which organs. Is this a daily timed eating or is this implemented during disease state? What, what, do you re- what is the science telling us and what do you recommend? Well, this is intimately linked to our uh, circadian rhythm. It's almost like every day we need to sleep and wake up. Um, I believe that this maintaining a regular uh, window within which we eat and maintaining at least 12 to 14 hours of fast should be in daily regimen, starting from the age of maybe five or six, uh, child from starting from children to very old age. Uh, because this is the best way to maintain that homeostasis or balance between many different aspects of our body. Uh, When we go into disease state, that's when we have to be under some medical supervision because some of the diseases might cause our body to go go through hypoglycemic state. Our blood sugar might drop down dangerously low during this 14 to 16 hours fast, that might happen for a very small number of individuals, but we don't know who they are. So that's why they have to be under um, better supervision. Otherwise, I think um, this timed eating and fasting should be as regular as brushing our teeth and flossing our teeth. Um, this is what we do to, talk, to, to maintain our teeth in a healthy state. And once in a while, we go to the dentist for deep cleansing. So similarly, this time-restricted eating or eating within 10 to 12 hours at least interval should be daily routine. And once in a while, when we get into disease state, then we should be under medical supervision. Now, this differs from fasting. Um, those periods of time. There are many different, the word fast has come out in many different aspects. Uh, the five to two fast, the, you know, taking a, a three to four day water fast every three to six months. These are different things altogether, correct? The time dining is a completely different mechanism than these other ones. Well, the time dating, most of our research when we do this time dating, we connect it back to circadian rhythm. And these circadian rhythms happen on daily basis. So uh, the mechanism, I won't say it's completely different, it might be overlapping. For example, when, when our body goes through 12 to 16 hours of not seeing food, Um, there is a debate whether that's fasting or not. So that's why I say 12 to 16 hours of not seeing food. Then uh, some of the metabolic changes that happen may look somewhat similar to when the body is going through 24, 48, or 72 hours without, without food. So for example, our ketone bodies might rise slightly during this 16 hours of fast. Uh, 16 hours of not seeing food, whereas on a two to three or four days of fast or two days of water fast, etc., the ketone bodies will uh, rise substantially higher. So I would say uh, some of the mechanisms are overlapping and some are distinct, some are unique to circadian rhythms. Is there a need to fast while you're doing the time dating, do you believe? Meaning like say a two to three day water fast? Do you implement both? Well, so just like so, that's why I uh, like to go back to the analogy with uh, dental hygiene, where we brush and floss our teeth every day, uh, but once in a while, once in six months, or some for some people once a year, or for some people once in three months, uh, they need to go to the dentist for a deep cleansing. So similarly here, I think depending on what your health goals are one may go to that uh, longer fasting, one or two days of fasting or four or five days of fasting once in a while. Um, But that's something that one has to consult with the physician. Okay. And this timed eating, is this a calorie-restricted time? So um, we are actually not restricting calories. Uh, So in animal experiments or in laboratory condition, we we... when we reduce the number of hours um, our mice or our fruit flies have access to food uh, from 24 hours free access to say 8, 9, 10, or up to 12 hours free access, they actually do not reduce the total number of calories they eat every day. Uh, 
um, but they saw all these benefits. So that's why we don't believe that um, the mechanisms are identical to caloric restriction. In humans, it's slightly different. Most of us, when we who are used to eating for 14, 15, or 16 hours, when we go back to, say, 8 to 10 hours, we reduce some calories. And you may wonder who eats for 14, 15, 16 hours. And actually, we did a simple experiment a few years ago, and we have been repeating it um, again and again with humans. And surprisingly, what we find is more than 50% of adults um, eat for 15 hours or longer. So that means between their first sip of coffee with sugar and cream and the last sip of, say, wine or milk at night before going to bed, that interval is 15 to 16 hours. Okay, so when those people, they adopt a 8 hours or 10 hours or 12 hours eating interval, then, of course, they reduce some calorie intake and at the same time, they improve nutrition because they now cut down on that late-night snacks or the late-night wine and beer, so that reduces some calories and also improves nutrition. For very few people who are already on a very balanced diet and are calorie conscious, they don't reduce their calorie. They just reduce their timing. They also see benefit in uh, reducing some fat mass, feeling much better, more athletic, and getting better sleep. The very few people who kind of misread this and think that they can eat more or even worse within that 8 to 10 hours. And they have to be a little bit careful because we know that our body also needs good nutrition and has to have certain amount of calories. We cannot overeat. We cannot overeat five to 10,000 calories within that 8 hours or 10 hours and be completely inactive and expect some benefit. You said something about having coffee. So... If I was going to you know, let's, let's start people on this path today, how would they start yeah. their time-restricted eating? And the other one, I mean, I think people's eyes went up when you mentioned coffee. So drinking coffee in the morning, that would be considered an eating aspect of the day out, outside of, of the fasting state? Well, so these are very practical questions, and we always grapple with them because we cannot go back and do the experiments <laughs> clearly. Um, so my suggestion is, well, if you're drinking coffee without cream and sugar, then at least you are not activating your insulin system, so it should be tolerable. Um, but at the same time, when people ask, well, can they drink coffee later in the afternoon? So, for example, if someone is ending his or her eating interval or last meal, last bite at 6 o'clock in the evening and wants to have another cup of coffee, even black coffee at 9 or 10 o'clock, then my response is, well, you might be doing technically a fasting, but then at the same time you are giving the wrong signal to your brain. Now your brain will stay awake for several additional hours. So in that way, the rule of thumb is, well, if you cannot live without coffee, if that's the last cup of happiness you have to live with, uh, have it in the morning without cream and sugar, and please don't have it uh, at least six hours or six to eight hours before your bedtime. The coffee one is, I have to say, it's a hard one for me. I do have coffee in the morning. I can stick to everything else. It's amazing, actually, when you start following this diet how easy, not, not even a diet, how, when this plan, how easy it is when you know you have to shut down eating, it really is easy for your body to adapt to. It's like, you know, you've made a commitment to something and it's, it's much easier to follow through with. And I think a lot of people anticipate, people that I've, I've talked to and helped with on the diet, it is very doable. So if someone who's doing their 15-hour eating, as you say, what are tips that you would give them to start the timed eating? Do you go full throttle into it, or do you graduate up to it? Um, what we're trying to tell is uh, pick your 10 to 10 hours window and that you think you can do. So different people have different commitments. Some people would love to have their breakfast with their wives in the morning. Um, or some people want to have their dinner with their children and the entire family in the evening. So whatever is the most essential thing that you cannot live without, 
that should be your goal post or time post. So if your dinner is at say seven o'clock at night uh, and you cannot eat alone, you have to eat with the family, then just count back 10 hours and see whether you can actually start breakfast around that time. And in that way, it doesn't take away, it, people don't feel that they're missing out on something big in their life. Um, and the reason why I say 10 hours is, uh, 10 hours is a good sweet spot to begin with. Because if you cannot do it, if you need another one hour, then maybe your eating interval will be 11 hours. You are still on this uh, good disciplined eating regimen. You may not get the best benefit, but at the same time, you will do a lot of good things to your body and mind. And um, another thing is, what type of food would you like to eat? Um, since you are going through, initially you are going through almost uh, 14 hours of without food, it's better to increase some protein and some fat uh, with your last meal or dinner. So that will help you uh, to beat that hunger pang that might uh, happen in the middle of the night. And I think the first week is the really the toughest week. And after the first week, the body gets into it. And in fact, uh, I have seen people who try, who adapt to 10 hours or 11 hours, and then after three or four weeks, once they have to go out with their friends late at night, and then next day they come back and say, wow, our body really revolted. Mm -hmm. So you'll be surprised that you won't actually feel hungry after a certain time, as if the body, uh, as if our liver and gut puts a sign, the kitchen is closed and we cannot digest any food. So I would say just have that mental power to go through the first week, try to choose your 10, 10 hours interval and try to eat slightly more protein and fat in your last meal to help you go through that 14 hours of without food. Okay. Now, the issue that um, I grapple with that people have asked me is medications and supplements. Um, many of them need to be taken with food, and many people have to have them three times a day. So what, what do you say to people that are in that situation? Yeah, so this is, again, another tricky situation because we cannot do any clinical studies, not even with animals with this situation. So this is where uh, the medication takes priority. Uh, whatever your physician has told you, um, you have to follow that. Um, until we do more research, we figure out whether medications can be... There are some slow-release formulations uh, for many medications that can be taken, that can be reduced from three to two times. Um, but again, this is a conversation with your physician. I guess people who are very interested in trying to implement this diet could speak to their physician and tell them of their interest in trying to implement this and maybe work with their physician to try and get a new uh, prescription or a new method of implementing their medication schedule. Yes. Okay. Now, you have a very interesting app, and I'm wondering if we could spend the last few minutes talking about the app, and you've developed what people can do with the app and what you're doing with the information from the app. Yes, yeah, so as I said, uh, this is what we're doing about circadian rhythm is uh, something everybody experiences, but at the same time, the variations in our own lifestyle, and we cannot do controlled clinical study on uh, many aspects of our lifestyle. So the reason why I started the app was to understand the daily lifestyle of people, how people are living their life when it comes to timing of food, timing of exercise or physical activity, when they go to sleep, and how much they sleep, etc. And once we understand um, who are at high risk for circadian disruption outside the traditional shift workers, then we can figure out what they can do. The second aspect of starting the app, uh, that's called My Circadian Clock uh, app, was to also figure out if we give some suggestion, so just like now we are talking about time-restricted eating, sleeping, etc. Uh, people have the information. We actually send out information about circadian clock through the app. And then we want to see what people adopt in their life 
do people like to adopt say 10 hours eating 11 hours eating when do people prefer to have their breakfast or lunch or dinner so in that way we can figure out what is more pragmatic then the third thing we want to understand also when people change their eating behavior uh, what are the benefits they are seeing so for example initially we had no idea that people who reduce their eating time to 10 or 11 hours would see a huge improvement in their sleep they would feel more energetic throughout the day or the acid reflux would go down we had no idea but our participants when they adopt this lifestyle they give us feedback and tell us what is happening and then we go back to basic science we do the research and we figure out why this is happening so in that way we are learning a lot we are also learning that many people see a general reduction in inflammation so their joint pain goes down and when their joint pain goes down they can walk a little bit more so they go into this positive fit forward loop so anyone can sign up for this study they have to go to mycircadianclock.org and then sign in from consent and then they can download the app on their iPhone or Android phone and share their data with us for at least 2 weeks or up to 14 weeks and that will help us to figure out a many practical aspect of circadian rhythms it's it's a wonderful app i've been on it myself and um the i'm hoping that everyone now is getting a real sense of why this is so important you see that it's touching many many aspects of health if you want to find out more about Dr. Panda and his work at the Salk Institute, you can go to www.salk, that's S-A-L-K dot E-D-U. Dr. Panda, it's been a great privilege to speak to you. I thank you so much for taking the time. I know that our listeners have learned so much from what you're doing, and I hope that we can stay in contact because what you do I find is profound and I admire everything you're doing. So again, thank you so much for joining us and thank you everybody. And we will talk to you soon on the Health Hub. to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.